everybody. My name is Whitney. I'm an alcoholic. Really grateful to be at this meeting today. Um, Atlantic Group is my home group. Um, I have a sponsor, Marla, and my sobriety date is September um, 24th, 2014. And I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. Um, yeah, so a little bit about what it was like um, for me. Um, I used to think that the reason, you know, that I was an alcoholic came from, um, you know, like a lot of outside circumstances. Um, I grew up with a single mother on welfare, definitely a tough upbringing. And um, what I realized from reading the doctor's opinion and going through the steps is that alcoholism definitely is a disease of the mind. Um, alcohol is but a symptom. And um, it was about the craving for more because you know, when I hit my bottom, I told myself every morning that I wasn't going to drink anymore, that I was going to stop. And I, you know, was like three years into college, took a year off um, and was like living in a basement, no windows, bottle of room temperature vodka by my bedside. Um, and I drank every single morning. Um, and really around the clock at that point. So I had a really small world. Um, I literally only went outside to smoke cigarettes a couple times a day. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, I was really about isolation for me. Um, and basically my family was concerned about me, recommended that I see a therapist. And um, that is when I decided um, to try out AA. She had recommended it and she told me that I would find my family here. And that was 100% my experience. Um, when I went to my first AA meeting, I cried and I really felt like I had hope for the first time in a long time. Um, I was really scared. I was full of fear. I didn't think I was going to be able to um, complete my college degree, which was really important to me. I'm a first generation graduate and there is no way I would have been able to um, to graduate and to complete college if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, you know, part of my program today, I do prayer reading and meditation in the morning, and I made phone calls today to um, the two women that sponsored me in the beginning. And you know, thinking about speaking tonight, I was really overcome with gratitude for both of those women because. Um, I really don't believe I'd be sitting here talking to you right now if it wasn't for them. And uh, when I first came in, I was very uncomfortable saying the word God. I was raised Christian, um, and I just felt like uh, God was a punishing God. Um, and I just, I was uncomfortable with the word in and of itself. So when my sponsor first gave me instruction when I was counting days to do the third, seventh, and 11th step prayer. Um, I was really reluctant to do so. Um, and so instead I Googled prayers that didn't, you know, that I could say instead. And I found the first, second, and third step prayer, um, which actually I, I still repeat on a pretty regular basis. Um, so the first step prayer is creative intelligence, universal mind, spirit of nature, or spirit of the universe. My name is Whitney, and I'm a real alcoholic, and I need your help today. 
And then the second step prayer, God, I'm standing at the turning point right now. Give me your protection and care as I abandon myself to you and give up my old ways and my old ideas just for today. So those prayers were kind of just created from sections of the big book put together. Um, and for me, like I saw a change, I started hitting my knees. I had those prayers printed out on my the back of my dorm door. And, um, you know, I, I just got more comfortable with the word God. It was kind of really cool because I used to just say the first prayer and hate saying the next two, but then, um, you know, I really did have a change and, uh, and developed a relationship with a higher power. And for me, you know, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to pray. And if there is, it's not for me to say, but to this day, there's a difference for me between just kind of praying, um, you know, if I'm sitting or walking or whatever and hitting my knees, um, five minutes. Thank you. So I try to make a point to really, um, I sleep in a loft here in my little New York apartment and it's like, um, I really see a difference in the day when I like come downstairs, hit my knees and pray versus just pray, um, you know, like by barely scooting off the mattress that's on the floor and hitting my knees. Like it's just not the same. Um, and, uh, you know, so, um, I really feel like it's through the steps and through the book that I'm really able to sit here uh, with you all today. Um, I was reluctant to start working the steps with the sponsor and I went through my first, I think about um, six to nine months without working directly with a sponsor and I don't recommend that. Um, you know, I have relationships today like you know, I had mentioned my mother, like that was a difficult relationship. And um, I didn't have a relationship or speak with her for five years for what a lot of people would say was a good reason. And, and I definitely had justified anger there. And um, today, like, you know, I have a relationship with her um, because of COVID, like I've definitely seen some hardship. Like I did get laid off in March um, and I'm kind of like trying to figure out what to do next. But like I started gardening, which was really cool. Um, and I've been able to connect with my mom about that. And like, to me, that's, you know, it doesn't by any means replace my prayer reading and meditation, but it definitely like, it gives me the perfect time to be able to, um, you know, um, call other alcoholics, see how other people are doing. You know, I can be weeding in my garden and give people a call and kind of get out of myself. Um, and it's just like, I think about that girl who was just like alone in that basement, um, you know, relying on somebody else. I was unemployable um, and how full my life is today. Like how many people um, I have who I can call. Like, and, and I also used to be afraid to look at my phone. I remember when I was out there, like my phone would be on the nightstand and I'd be afraid to look at it. Um, I, I wouldn't look at it for days because I had so much dread. Um, and now like, you know, my phone's dinging right now as I'm talking on the meeting. Like I have um, people in my life today, I'm not afraid to pick up the phone. Um, it's a really, it's a different way of life. And um, I'm just so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, my experience even, I moved to New York a year ago and I would think I would be really lonely right now. Um, 
if it wasn't for this program, you know, literally being in, uh, you know, isolated a lot, not working. Um, and I have friends today who I've been able to make like over the phone. I mean, it's kind of creepy and kind of weird. Like I really feel for um, newcomers who are counting days right now because it's not easy to, um, you know, to call people and reach out to people you haven't met in person, but you've only seen over the Zoom screen, but, um, or at least that's my experience. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it gives me the, the best excuse though. Like I'm not seeing you all at meetings, but it's just, it really is such a gift um, for me to be able to like meet you all and share a little bit about my story and talk a little bit about my sobriety um, Atlantic group rely, reminds me a lot of the home group I had when I was in college. Um, lots of greeters at the door. Um, it was a big book study group. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a serious group. It's a group where, um, you know, like there's lots of service commitments, a lot of, um, people talking about the solution which is great. And, uh, and yeah, I'm really, I just want to express gratitude to any person who's ever taken my phone call or given me a service commitment because, um, it's just really, really great to be a part of and to, to be a part of this home group has been a, a real blessing. So, um, with that, I think I'll pass it off. Thank you. Our second minute or second 10 minute speaker is Frank. Hey everyone, I'm Frank, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thank you for asking me to speak tonight. It's an honor and privilege to speak for my home group. Uh, my sobriety date is March 11, 2020. It's my second sobriety date. My first sobriety date was September 2nd, 2019. So I've now counted days here at the Atlantic Group uh, two times in the last year. The first time was in person at meetings and the second time was here on Zoom with all you. Um, so anyway, I began drinking in my later years of high school, and I drank for about 10 years. Uh, the first, first half, first five years, I would say overall, I have a lot of good memories when thinking about alcohol. You know, that was when alcohol definitely worked for me. It was my solution to all my problems back then, and it worked. You know, anytime that I felt insecure or I felt like I was in an uncomfortable situation or whatever feeling that I didn't want to feel anymore, I would drink. And it worked. I wouldn't feel those feelings anymore. Um, you know, I didn't start out as an everyday drinker. I started out more as a social drinker. So I didn't have a lot of consequences in my life at that time as a result of my drinking. But my disease definitely uh, progressed. And probably, I guess, once I graduated college is when I really noticed that my drinking started to increase significantly. You know more often I, I would begin losing control when I drank. Um, you know, I, countless times I would say, I'm only gonna go have two drinks. And before you know it, it's 4 a.m. and I don't even know where I am. Um, I, I began blacking out, I never used to black out. And due to my increased drinking, you know, I started seeing um, consequences. Um, you know, my, my parents definitely noticed I probably had a problem with alcohol, but you know, anytime things got so bad in terms of like consequences, uh, somehow, some way, I would be able to muster up enough uh, willpower to kind of stop or like sober up for a brief period of time, not long, 
Uh, and so I picked up again. I went out and I, and I went out on another bender. Um, and each time I went on a bender, it got harder and harder for me to get off or get stop drinking. And the bender lasted longer and longer. Um, you know, so I, I tried different things for help. Once things got pretty bad, I, I, I went out, I reached out for outside help, outpatient therapy, things like that. And nothing really worked. You know, what brought me to my knees was basically my bottom last year, um, which was a six month bender that I just couldn't get off. I mean, I went every single day last year uh, drinking. I didn't have a single, a single sober day in that six months. Um, and that six months, I didn't have a single, single sober day. And it's not because I wanted to drink every day you know every day i would wake up and be like today i'm not gonna pick up and by that night i would pick up and i was pretty much at that point dying from alcoholism and i basically gave up on life i mean i didn't have any suicidal plans but i did want to die um you know i wanted the pain to stop and i do use other substance substances in, in addition to alcohol so for the last two months of that six month bender i basically went into psychosis. I got, I was psychotic for two months, which was probably the worst thing I've ever experienced. And I, yeah, I was willing to die if it wasn't for my parents with, you know, some outside help, they got me to go to treatment, uh, last September. And I, and I, that's once I, once I got psychotic, I was willing to go. Um, so at this time last year I was in, I was in rehab and that's where, that's where I was introduced to AA and I came out of this psychosis thing. And, um, you know, AA, came, AA speakers came into the rehab and I, and I listened to them and I identified with what they said. Uh, and it was a relief that, you know, there are other people out there that uh, dealt with the same problems that I dealt with. Um, you know, when I was out there, I felt like I was the only one that this was happening to. Um, so once I left treatment, you know, I didn't want to go back to the life that I was living because uh, it was a disaster. So I accepted additional outside help and I went to AA. So last year, uh, once I left, I went to Atlanta group on a Tuesday night meeting I met my sponsor, Jeff, and I had a willingness to do a lot at that point. You know, I did my 90 and 90, uh, after my 90 days, I was going to six or seven meetings a week. I had two service commitments a week. I was going to fellowship. I was praying pretty much every day. Um, you know, I was, oh, we got it. We were meeting once a week to do step work. So I was doing all that, but what I wasn't willing to do at that point was give up my old life, so to speak. You know, I was involved with, uh, some dishonest things that I was doing for a number of years prior to getting sober that I was still doing after I came into AA. Uh, and I was doing this all on the side and I was still associating with people that probably uh, should not, got it, five minutes, uh, should not have been associating with at that point or even now. Um, and obviously, I mean, I definitely wasn't telling my sponsor about any of these things. You know, I never, I used to think that as long as I'm not lying directly, that I'm being an honest person, but I've now come to learn that if I omit certain information, then I'm lying by omission. Um, and this double life kind of caught up with me and it's definitely a large factor as to why I relapsed in March. Uh, so one day I just, I picked up in March and I picked up on a Sunday and basically picked up right where I left off, just around the clock drinking. Um, you know, I really can't do much else when I pick up other than drink. I just lose all control. Uh, and I, once I picked up, I knew that 
I knew that I made a huge mistake. So uh, I, told, I was honest with my sponsor the next day and the plan was for me to come back to AA and count my days, but I, I, I couldn't make it to a meeting. You know, once I pick up, that, that's it. I'm just gone. Um, by Tuesday, I got psychotic again and I ended up, my sponsor ended up taking me to the hospital. Sobered up at the hospital, uh, left that night and I picked up again that night. So by, by Wednesday I had enough and I, um, I went back to treatment for a period of time. That was all pre-COVID, so, so I got out of treatment and came back to a completely different world. Um, everybody was on Zoom. But I jumped back into the work of my sponsor, counted my days here on Zoom. This time around, I was able to do a much more honest fourth step. I was in the middle of my fourth step when I relapsed in March. Um, you know, I, uh, I try today to be much more open and honest about, you know, all aspects of my life. but. I was able to do a more honest fourth step. My fifth step was extremely helpful. We did it over FaceTime. Uh, we got, I got to see my part and all my resentments as well, well as well as all these fears that I had that I, I never, I never even thought about. Um, and six and seven, I struggled with initially at first, actually, because it's it's one thing to write down, you know, my defects and kind of share them with my sponsor, but it's another thing to actually make the changes, you know, and take the action to do the right thing. You know, for a long time, I was used to just being the sneaky person that kind of did um, a lot of sneaky things and didn't really tell anyone. So to be open and honest with my sponsor as well as others was difficult at first, but with through prayer and with some time, I've come around on a lot of these defects. And uh, currently I'm working on steps 9, 10, 11, and 12. You know, I try my best to be helpful to others. You know, every day I, I start my day uh, by praying and meditating and, and I read AA literature. Um, you know, these Zoom meetings have been extremely helpful for me, uh, staying sober. You know, I've been going to one or two meetings a day and I, and I make sure to really put AA first because, um, you know, by working these steps, I, I have been developing a relationship with a higher power, you know, and I am beginning to feel uh, a greater sense of peace of mind you know I'm, I'm able to depend on my higher power and just know that as long as i do the right thing you know things will kind of turn out okay or at least the way they're supposed to turn out you know and i'm at peace with that um you know i try i definitely still have days when i'm irritable restless and discontent but i have the tools of the program to get through those days you know if i have a resentment i write it out and i'll share it with my sponsor you know, I try my best to practice gratitude. Gra practicing gratitude has been you know, a very important part of my recovery because, you know, it changes my perspective on things because regardless of how bad a day I ha I'm having, you know, I should just be thankful for another day. I really should be dead. You know, I, I, I was, um, you know, I was sick and suffering for a long time. And, you know, by the grace of God, I, I was given another chance. Um, so yeah, just, you know, very grateful uh to be here to be able to do service you know to hopefully help another and um thanks for uh, letting me share thanks tonight is eileen good evening my name is eileen and i'm an alcoholic hello eileen hi there um i want to thank rich uh, for asking me to come and participate um I also want to thank Frank and Whitney for their talks, and I want to welcome all the people who are counting days. Uh, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I think it's incredibly courageous uh, to get sober on Zoom, and yet I'm seeing people 
in meeting after meeting who have never been to a face-to-face -face meeting and people are staying sober, which I think is really a testimony to the miracle that is Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, tell you a little about myself. I live in Los Angeles, so it's 4.34 here. Um, my sobriety date is March 3rd, 1975. I'm sober 18 days shy of my 24th birthday. I'm 69 years old and I'm 45 years sober. Um, and I am grateful and I am an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have had thus far, um, you know, a very AA kind of a day. Um, I spoke to a few sponsees on the phone. A sponsee came over and we sat in what I call my socially distant conversational pit in my front yard. Um, and we had lunch and this is my first of three meetings. I am going to be in this meeting, then I'm going to be in my home group, and then I'm going to a memorial meeting for a friend of mine, Don Norman, who passed away with over 40 years of sobriety. So I'm going to back to back to back meetings. And, uh, and I don't mind because I'm somebody who absolutely uh, loves the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, loves going to meetings. Um, I am a grateful, uh, member of this fellowship and uh, I will tell you a little bit about what I used to be like what happened and what I'm like today um, I am a Jew from Boise, Idaho and if you know anything about Jews or Boise, you know how weird that actually is um, I love hearing the people talk in this meeting because my parents came from the Bronx which is where you're supposed to come from if you're a Jew and uh, and their names were Harry and Harriet they were a set uh, they were meant to stay together forever, and um, they managed to make it to almost 63 years when my mother died. And, um, you know, uh, my father was, um, was in the Marine Corps uh, in, in World War II. He uh, went overseas to the South Pacific. He saw combat in Guadalcanal. And when he came back from overseas, uh, he traveled across the United States. He came back in via San Francisco. He traveled across the United States. He married my mother on July 15th, 1944. And then he got a commission uh, while still in the Marine Corps to reopen Marine Corps recruiting stations in the Western United States, which had been closed during the war. And the war was winding down. And so they went to Portland, Oregon, then to Butte, Montana, and finally uh, to Boise. And my dad was a lifelong baseball guy. Um, he was a lifelong Yankee fan. He idolized Lou Gehrig. He was in the stadium when Lou Gehrig gave, when Lou Gehrig gave the famous I'm the luckiest man in the world speech. Um, so when he got out of the service, he became a minor league baseball announcer and disc jockey in Boise. And uh, my parents were on the verge of moving back to New York when I was four. And my father got a job in Los Angeles, so we came here instead. Um, basically, I was the star of my grammar school. I excelled at everything except for physical education and interpersonal relationships. And I peaked at 11 and a half, and it was kind of downhill from there. And I grew up during the 60s. Uh, the 60s were a fantastic generation for any budding alcoholic. I loved everything about the 60s. I loved the alcohol, I loved the drugs, I loved the politics, I loved the clothes, I loved the music, I loved the people. I loved the you know free love, which turned out to be neither free nor love. But I just, I loved everything about the 60s. I mean, these were my people. You know, I always felt like a freak, even though I was really somebody who excelled a lot, but I always felt like a freak. 
and I was so happy to finally find my people uh, during, uh, you know, during the 60s. And I started to drink uh, when I was about 12 years old. And, you know, I think about that now. I have a granddaughter who's 14, and she's been messing around with drugs and probably alcohol. And, you know, and I look at her and I think she's a little girl. And I was a little girl, you know, but I was a little girl who really needed a drink. And, um, and so I started to drink at 12. I got sober at 24. I drank for 12 years only. And uh, the big book talks about how women alcoholics are sometimes gone beyond recall in a few short years. And that's what happened to me. You know, um, it also says that we are men and women who like the effect produced by alcohol. I loved the effect produced by alcohol. I cannot overemphasize how much I love the effect produced by alcohol. And I like to take alcohol and I like to take medication intended for sleep because I don't want to be here. So I'm a Ripple and Reds kind of girl. I'm a tequila and Quaaludes kind of girl. I mean, that's the kind of girl I am. I am, I am most often completely out of it. Um, and I, I have two speeds, basically. I'm in the corner drooling or I'm operating a motor vehicle. And, you know, that's kind of who I am. There's kind of no in between. And, uh, you know, everything in my life went downhill almost immediately. And, uh, you know, when I was a young girl, when I was in my mid-teens, 14, 15, 16, I was an absolutely heartbreakingly beautiful hippie girl. I had porcelain skin. I had black hair down to my butt. I needed to get a source for alcohol and other things. And I very quickly learned that I could do what I like to call favors, you know, for older guys who would get me what I needed because I needed a source. And I was too young to go into a bar or a liquor store and put down my money and get what I needed. And so one night I was doing a favor uh, for a drug dealer named Gimpy uh, when I was 17 and I got pregnant. And I refused to believe that I was pregnant. I'd been having sex for two years with impunity and all of a sudden, what, I'm pregnant? I refused to believe it. And by the time I finally went to a doctor, I was four and a half months pregnant. This was 1968. You could still do things, but it was way too late for me. And uh, so in March of 1969, I had a child, a son. Um, I never saw him, I never held him. Um, my uh, prenatal care was practically non-existent and I signed paperwork and I gave him away. And 10 days later, I was back to doing exactly what I was, you know, before I got pregnant and for the first four or five months of my pregnancy too. And, you know, right, and even after I got, you know, when my parents sent me away and I, uh, you know, I, uh, I found a way to get loaded even when I was living with this other family. I found the boys next door. You know, we can always find somebody. And uh, anyway, I uh, drank and used for another six years. Um, you know, I am no stranger to what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous calls pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I was sober at least a year or two before I realized how pitiful and incomprehensible my situation actually was. And, uh, you know, but, um, you know, I was uh, very lucky because I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. AA was a much more anonymous organization when I went to my first meeting in 1974. I went to my first meeting in July or August of 1974. A central office in Los Angeles used to do a very clever thing. 
Um, you know, for you young people, um, I will tell you that there was a time when we did not have 24-hour television. In the middle of the night, there was no television. They used to put up a test pattern on the screen. It was like a black and white Indian, but you could rent space on late night TV. And Central Office in Los Angeles did this very clever thing. They rented space like in the middle of the night when an alcoholic would come to on the couch after, you know, drinking a lot of wine, which was my case. And there was a single card up on the screen and it said, do you have a drinking problem? And I thought, how did they know? You know, I mean, it was like, do you have a drink? Is there like a like an alien living in my TV? And there was a number to call Central Office in Los Angeles. And I called up. And a guy answered the phone in the middle of the night. We have a 24-hour central office here in LA. Guy answered the phone and he said, Alcoholics Anonymous, may I help you? And I said, I think I drink too much. And he said, would you like me to have somebody call you? And I said, okay. And, uh, you know, he woke this woman up in the middle of the night. I still find that so moving. He woke this woman up in the middle of the night and she called me. And she said, can I help you? And I said, I think I drink too much. And she said, would you like me to take you to a meeting? And I said, oh, no, thank you. I said, I'll get there myself. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous like this. Help me, but stay as far away from me as possible, but please help me. I was not a cuddly newcomer. I was not a vision for you. You know how newcomers, sometimes people like just race across the room to get to them. I was the newcomer people raced across the room to get away from. I went to meetings in basements in Hollywood. I leaned against walls with my arms folded. I glared at people. I dared them to come near me, and most people didn't. I did not get sober in 1974. I would not even call it slipping. I, I went to a meeting occasionally in 1974, and when the holidays rolled around Christmas, New Year's, I thought there's no point in sticking around. And so I left with a vague plan to come back after the first of the year. But my anniversary or birthday, as we call them out here, is March 3rd, so it took a little longer than I thought it would. And I went to a meeting on March 3rd, and then on March 4th of 1975, and I wouldn't have given you two nickels for my chances of making it from that day to this, but on March 4th of 1975, I went to a meeting at a clubhouse called Radford in North Hollywood, California, and I ran into a man named Bob Earl that I had met the year before. And he backed me up against the wall in that meeting, and he said to me, look, punk, he said, you have a serious problem with alcohol and drugs and you better damn well get sober or you're going to die. And the miracle of that encounter is that I took his phone number and I actually called him. Lots of nice people had given me their phone numbers the year before I had not called one single person. You know, they wrote their numbers on little slips of paper and just every, you know, I just empty my pockets and throw them away. You know, I wasn't gonna call anybody. But I called him and what was even more miraculous was that I called him a second time because the first time, completely unsolicited by me, he started telling me what to do. And, uh, you know, the things, and he didn't, and he didn't care, you know, about my opinion about it either. I mean, you know, he, the things that he told me to do are really, you know, very much the same things I do today with some, you know, minor changes. He told me to go to seven to nine meetings a week. He told me to sit in the front row. He told me to be responsible for my chair and my ashtray. He told me to thank speakers whether I thought they had anything to say or not. He told me to get a big book and read it. He told me to get a commitment and he told me that I was essentially useless, but I had a car 
and I could drive other people to meetings. Now, I have to tell you, I was not thrilled with this idea because it involved other people, and I didn't really like other people. I didn't want them near me, you know, like in my car and stuff, and he really didn't care. And none of my sponsors have ever cared about my opinion about the direction they're giving me. They just sort of assume that if I want what they have, I might try to do what they did. And I got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous from that day forth, and I have never not been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. The longest I have ever gone without a meeting is two weeks or three weeks following surgery. I've had a lot of orthopedic surgeries. I just have one of those bodies where the warranty runs out on a part every few years. And so I've had recuperations, but I've had calls. I've had people to come over. I've had, you know, I've done all of this. And, um, you know, and, and once on a trip to Africa where there was no chance of going to a meeting, but I have been to meetings all over this country. I've been to meetings all over Canada. I've been to meetings all over the world. I love going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous no matter where I go. I just love to be with you. I love to be with you. Before this pandemic started, I was coming to New York once a month for a week. And, uh, you know, and I was going to meetings in New York. And um, I didn't make it to the Atlantic group, but I went to Rhinelander and I went to Fireside and I went to the Oxford group. And, uh, you know, I went, I went to, you know, I went to meetings all over New York and I have friends in New York. Marlena's on this call and Marlena and I are good friends. And, uh, and, you know, and I have a fellowship and Tom Kay is on here and he's my friend. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, I am connected to Alcoholics Anonymous no matter where I go and no matter what I do. And the fact that I'm 45 years sober does not change the fact that I need this program. In fact, when I was newer, I used to think that I would not need this program as much. And the truth of the matter is it's the exact opposite because the older you get, the more challenging life becomes, you know, things happen, people die, you have medical stuff. Um, you know, I mean, I'm coming to the end of my career. I've had a long career. I will have been in my job for 32 years and I'm retiring at the end of next year. It's gonna be huge change, you know? I'm a personal assistant in the entertainment industry and, uh, you know, and I've had a lot of privilege and stuff that's that's gone along with the job that I have, which by the way, is just all about being of service. And, you know, lots of things happen and life changes and things intervene and, uh, you know, and this program uniquely qualifies us for dealing with these things. I mean, you know, the pandemic has not been on, as hard on me as it could have been because I've learned how to follow the rules. I've learned how to cooperate. You know, when I got sober, uh, the words that I thought were dirty were not profanity. I mean, you know, I'm not gonna swear tonight because you've asked me not to and, you know, and I follow the rules, but I like to swear sometimes, you know, it's helpful. The words that I thought were dirty were like job, responsibility, commitment, cooperation. How about the word cooperation? You know, I've learned how to cooperate not only in AA, but I've learned how to cooperate in my community. When we were told as seniors, and I am a senior, when we were told as seniors to you know stay at home, I stayed at home. You know, and when I was asked to put on a mask, I put on a mask. You know, I, I do what I'm asked to do in order to cooperate because our common welfare doesn't just come first in AA, it comes first wherever we are. You know, I try to bring to the world, I try to bring to my community, I try to bring to this fellowship, I try not to take away. You know, I try to do whatever I can to bring and I have years and years of experience, strength and hope to share. And I try to do it as often as possible because being of service is the thing that has absolutely saved me. Thank you for the warning. 
Being of service has absolutely saved me, you know, and I've been able to do it in all areas of my life. You know, in 2007, my mother, who had been fine the day before, I was down in Dallas speaking at a convention, and I got a call from my brother that my father had taken my mother to the hospital. And I got home at 5.30, and my then-boyfriend picked me up from the airport. I got to see my mother for a few minutes, and my mother, who was fine the day before, was dead by 7.45 that evening. Uh, she, had had, she had become septic and had a heart attack from, from some situation that she had. And my father, who was the prince of men, was 86 years old, and he had never lived alone. He had gone from his family to the military to marriage with my mother at age 23. And he had never lived alone, and we didn't know what to do. So for the first two months, I stayed with my father. And then for seven years, I basically stayed with my father every other night, so he would have something to look forward to. And he was great company. My father was the greatest of all gentlemen. I mean, he really was. He was the mensch of all menches. And, uh, you know, uh, he was a doll. And, um, you know, he was tremendous company. He was funny. He was smart. He was, he was everything. And when he was still able, you know, we traveled all over the place. And we went to ball games. And we went to the symphony. And we went to, you know, we went to uh, the movies. And we went to plays. And we went out to dinner. And we just spent time together. And we watched baseball on TV. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and I adored my father. And lots of times it was really inconvenient. And I gave up a lot to take care of him. And I took care of him for 11 years. He lived 11 years after my mother died. And you know, what I really learned how to do during that time is what I really learned how to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is what I like to call the inconvenient thing. You know, and for me, you know, just putting on a pair of pants and leaving the house some days is the inconvenient thing. But you know, you make accommodations, you change plans, you realize that nothing is that important, you know, and that you take care of, you know, what's in front of you. And my father became the primary focus of my service, but I still had a sponsor, I still sponsored. I still went to meetings. I stopped traveling all over the place to speak because I wasn't going to leave my father alone on the weekends. And that was how it had to be. And uh, on March 15th, two years ago, uh, my beloved father passed away and I was with him. And we had gone out to dinner the night before and we'd watched Jeopardy and sometime in the middle of the night he got a massive cerebral hemorrhage. And by the following afternoon he was gone. And I still miss him terribly. I still miss him. But it opened up, you know, space in my life. You know, I got like five new sponsees in the first two months after my father passed away. And I had the time for them. And I had the need to be of service to them because I was bereft. You know, I was bereft. But what I've learned how to do here is get into action. And they used to say that you cannot think yourself into right action, but you can act yourself into right thinking. And, you know, I've had a spiritual experience of the most educational variety, as they talk about in the appendix in the back of the book. You know, all they're talking about in those two pages in the spiritual experience, in my opinion, is a change of attitude. You know, I'm a fairly positive person. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a completely negative malcontent. You know, I was so negative. I mean, it was always the other shoe was going to drop. And the other shoe almost always did drop because of my behavior. And because of the chaos that I created in my life and in the lives of others. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've learned how to show up, to be of service, to try and be honest, to keep my side of the street clean, 
you know, to have some sort of a spiritual contact. I'm not a deist. I don't believe in like, you know, a, a one God old man in the sky, but I know that there's a power in the universe and I rely on it every single day in order to stay sober, in order to stay sane in the middle of a time that's really difficult. You know, Sunday night, you know, it was like 121 degrees in Los Angeles on Sunday. I mean, unprecedented heat. And by Sunday night, I just thought, we're living in hell. You know, I mean, that's it. We have a pandemic. It's 121 degrees. You know, and I watch all these dark English shows on BBC, you know, and I just thought, you know, you got to stop watching Silent Witness for a moment. You know, it's enough with the killing and the heat and the people and the pandemic. And, you know, but by Monday morning, I was okay. And I went to a couple of meetings and, you know, it was fine again. But it's just how it is sometimes. You know, sometimes life is rough. You know, sometimes, and I'm not exempt from that, but I know what to do. But I don't always feel great. You know, I don't always feel great and life isn't always perfect, but you know, life is good. And I never, ever think about drinking. I never, there is no situation in my life that a drink could not make worse, not one, you know? And I know that from years of experience. I'm gonna tell you one more quick story because I'm running out of time, although I haven't gotten the five minute notice yet, but I am going to tell you one other story, which is this. If you think there's gonna come a time in your life where everything's gonna get wrapped up in a nice neat little package and nothing's ever gonna intervene again, you know, and it's all gonna be like just push from here on out. You know, God throws what I like to call the celestial monkey wrench into the mix just to make sure we're paying attention. And I got a doozy on March 4th, on July 4th of 1996. My telephone rang in the morning. I was looking forward to four days off of work. I thought, you know, at some point I'll go to the store, get the stuff for the salad that I promised to bring to the barbecue. I was gonna have a very mundane day. And my phone rang and it was a woman. And she said, my name is Julie Jones and I'm a private search investigator from Seattle, Washington. And I have been asked to locate you. And I had no idea why she was calling. And then I, and she said, is your name Eileen Waterstone? And I said, yes. And she said, does the date March 28th mean anything to 1969 mean anything to you? And then I knew because that was the day my son was born. And I started to cry because I'm dramatic, if you can't already tell. And I said, is he in Seattle? And she said, oh, no. She said, we do this all by computer. Your son lives in your area. Well, my son was living a mile and a half away from me 27 years later. Not only that, but he was working as the doorman at a club, actually an infamous strip bar in Los Angeles called Jumbo's Clown Room, which was owned, which is still owned by the family of my niece's now ex-husband. But at the time she was still married to that husband. So my son was working for my niece's mother-in-law. Nobody knew he was my son. And not only that, but he was friends with the daughter of a woman I sponsored, and he, she, he had been in her house many times, but nobody knew he was my son. So uh, she said, can I give him your phone number? And I said, no. I said, give me his, call him back and tell him I'll call him, but I have some things to organize here. Like I have to pick my stomach up off the floor. I mean, I never thought that, that, that this would happen. I had always heard that boys were less likely to search than girls, you know, whatever. Anyway, I, about a half an hour later, I called him and I said, my name is Eileen Waterstone and I understand you're looking for me. 
And in our very first conversation without knowing anything about me, he told me that he had been in a rehab two years earlier. Now, given the details of his conception with Gimpy, the drug dealer, <laughs> I was not shocked, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Uh, but I could tell from the tone of the conversation that he was not currently rehabbing. So I thought, oh, what the hell? So I said, hey! I said, what an amazing coincidence. I said, I have 21 years in Alcoholics Anonymous and I could sort of hear, oh God, oh my God, she knows, you know? It was like he wasn't gonna get away with anything. Anyway, I went to pick him up three days later, except for the fact that he's six foot three, half Mexican and a guy, we look exactly alike. And I took him downtown for sushi and he ordered a couple of beers and I paid for him. I mean, I figure let him drink, it'll get him in faster, you know, get him in faster. And. Uh, Anyway, um, we have had a 24-year um, ride, and it has not always been easy. The first 10 years that I knew my son, he went in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. His last two years sounded very much like Frank's, uh, the end of Frank's drinking. He was drinking and taking other substances, and he was psychotic. He would call me and tell me this crazy stuff, and... Uh, you know, and I and he called me at work, you know, like he'd say that he was at Kaiser Hospital and they were going to put him in the MRI machine and do terrible things to him. And I would say, no, that's not happening. It's OK. I'm at work. I got to go. You know, he called me and say he was in a motel surrounded by the FBI. That wasn't happening. You know, I mean, it was just insane. And then he met a guy named Christopher who was like Bob, the guy that I met. And he actually listened to him. And for almost 10 years, he stayed sober. Christopher died, actually not sober. But for almost 10 years, he stayed sober. Then he was lying about it. Then he finally talked to it. Then he went to rehab and he got like a year. And right now my son is living in a sober living in Woodland Hills with four months of sobriety after 26 years around this program. I put him in the sober living because he asked me to. But I told him, I said, here's the deal. I said, I will stake you to six months in the sober living. I said, but if you leave, I'm not putting you back in. And if you leave, I'm not putting you in another one. So you'd better take advantage of this opportunity because it's gonna be the last time. And that's how I feel. He's been around for 24 years, 26 years. He knows what to do. The only thing is he needs to do it. And he's 51 years old. And I hope to God that he stays so. You know, and I took it out of money that's intended for his inheritance. And I told him, I said, you know, I said, I hope you live long enough to inherit this when I die. And that's how I feel about it. And, uh, you know, I love him. I have a couple of grandkids. These were things I never anticipated. I have a grandson who's just incredible at 18. And I have my granddaughter who's like mini me. You know, she's kind of following in my footsteps and there's nothing I can do about it now. But, uh, you know, I love this program. I, um, I have gratitude unbounded. You know, I don't know where I would be if I were not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, my life has unfolded in many different ways, um, you know, and I have, I've spent two thirds of my life here clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and it's been the greatest gift of my life. And I'm gonna close with this. I have a friend here in LA, a Catholic priest, his name is Father Terry. And many years ago, I was privileged to share the lectern with him on Christmas Eve at a club down in South Central Los Angeles. And he closed with this. And I always like to close with it as well. He said, not only am I grateful to still be sober, I'm grateful that I'm still happy about it. 
And I want to thank the Atlantic Group uh, for the privilege of sharing here. And uh, thanks again, Rich, and I appreciate it.